Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. In the year 1991, Mr. Gorbachev tore down that wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right. All the metaphors and things. Man, yeah. Uh, wow, it's it really is 6 a.m. <laughs> it really is 6 a.m. No, I just woke up. I'm like, why am I up now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Okay. <laughs> but yes, yes. Cold War metaphors and all that with uh, today's movie, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Um, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to our... I'm gonna, I'm waiting for you. I'm I'm gonna let you finish it. Sci-fi. Why would you do that? Sci-fi sanctuary. <laughs> Did you almost say fi-sci sanctuary? <laughs> I was just so annoyed at you. Normally, you're the one who wants to toss it back every other word. <laughs> now you're making me finish the <laughs> sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, I'm claiming my six a.m. rights here, and of course you can claim yours. So, and it's all moot in the end. <laughs> That's all right. I've got my two cans of G Zone. No, I forgot to even get a water here. I'm just like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, um, as it's Star Trek, and this is our sixth Star Trek, we always like to bring in a guest for the Star Trek films. And uh, this time we've got from one of my favorite podcasts, The Computer Game Show, and probably more relevant to listeners of this podcast, Star Ghouls, uh, the other half of the coin, it's James Farley. Hello. Yeah, it's me. So, the, the, for, the, oh, go ahead. I was the first s- side of the coin being his co-host. Yeah, yeah, we had Dave on for Back to the Future a while back. But uh, me and Matt have spoken at length about our history of Star Trek, so I figured it uh, makes sense to give the floor to you, James. How did you get into the trekking? Yeah, I mean, you see, I've, I've been... I'd, I'd probably say that Star Trek is probably my probably my favourite thing, like, in terms of, like, media, you know, that I think I've, I've sort of, you know, experienced... In my life, and it, it's had like a big—I'd say it's had a pretty big impact actually on my life, like over over the years. And I think, I mean, it probably began, I think, in the late '80s when I used to catch like the odd episode on, um, you know, the like the original series and everything before uh, before the next generation was on on like BBC Two and stuff like that. And I remember my dad used to like occasionally record stuff, you know, like off off TV for me, you know, to like to watch later. And he recorded um, it was actually Star Trek Two, uh, the Wrath of Khan. Uh, off the, off the TV, and uh, that was the first. I think that was the first film that I saw, and I mean, I was blown away by it. As I mean, how was I? I was about sort of nine or ten years old, and it was it was incredible. I I just it completely sucked me in to the entire universe, um, really. And uh, from that point on, really, I just became more and more obsessed and more and more interested um, in the whole in the whole thing. I think 
I mean, six, I mean, two, two is probably still one of my favourites, but six, I mean, the one we're going to talk about is, I mean, I, I watched it again just over the last couple of days, and I, I still think it's one of my favourite films ever. I think it's fantastic. I mean, it maybe it doesn't hit the same sort of, um, sort of notes as as uh, the Wrath of Khan does, but it's still for me, it's a very it's a very sort of emotionally affecting film. I find I always feel very sad at the end of that film, uh, especially because I think the score is, you know, is particularly fantastic. But um, yeah, I think I think really it was the films to begin with that got me into it, and then obviously the Next Generation, and then I think it was it was Deep Space Nine really was the one probably I'd say more recently, but it's really twenty years ago that was the thing that I really became very very obsessed with, and uh, yeah, I. I I've watched it many, many times because I think it's really quite incredible. Because I've always been, I'm always sort of more attached to the sort of, um, the, you know, sort of the political side of Star Trek, and you know, and that's really, I think, why I really like Six as well because that's, uh, you know, obviously that's one of the uh, the main sort of themes of the film. But yeah, it's I, yeah, I'm excited about this film. I love it a lot. <laughs> Six is nicer, sort of sticking its landing. I think. Um... We actually like Five around the sci-fi sanctuary for some reason. But yeah, I mean, people have basically been waiting years and years for like just a rousing, you know, Star Trek adventure of some kind. You know, Captain Kirk on the bridge of the Enterprise with a full crew, which you had not really gotten in the movies, which is interesting. Five, you were supposed to, but uh, it was just, you know, kind of committed the sin of being totally weird and clunky in what we consider a fun way. But we get it. Yeah, I mean, see, that's that's you see, it's it's strange with five because I don't hate five at all. I because that's you see, maybe it's because of when when I was growing up and when I saw it, I I maybe I didn't have the same sort of critical faculties that I've maybe got as I've got older. But I've still got a huge fondness for that film because I still I think they he was I mean Chatner was trying something with that like he, he, and obviously it didn't maybe completely work, but it's still I think an interesting film. I still feel I mean this is probably a terrible thing to say, but I still think it's better than any of the more recent films as. In like the um, you know the uh, what's called the uh, oh, the Abrams films. Ones, yeah, mm. yeah. I, I still would. I'd much rather watch that than any of those films. But, I might, uh, maybe I might it's just, just you know. put Beyond above that. But yeah. yeah, Beyond was quite good. That wasn't so bad. That was probably the best I think of the three. But uh, the other two, I mean, the second one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm starting to wonder if people secretly like Five. I just find the more that I mention it, I'm like I always try coding it with like a little disclaimer. But no, 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 I like Five. Yeah, I think we all maybe we, in twenty twenty we all like five. I don't, I don't think know. anyone uh, who's brought it up with has said they don't like it yet. <laughs> that's yeah, that's what I'm getting. At. If, uh, you know, comment us over here if you're like, yeah, no, five is still the uh, the terrible blunder of the century or last century or whatever. Um, as for six, the first time I saw it was in this kind of this like small regional mall or where we'd see some movies. Not quite the multiplex. Uh, they, it was one of those two screen deals. Uh, the the main fun thing is it was opening night. We liked it, but uh, that mall has since been completely recast as like a Mexican mall. And you go in there, and it's Atlanta, Georgia. But it, it, I, I, well, I haven't been to Mexico City, but I imagine it feels like Mexico City inside. So you can get real tacos and stuff. It's great. I don't think you could see Star Trek Six there anymore, though. That's a shame. That should bring it back. <laughs> I don't think I saw this one properly until quite late. Like, when I was in my teens and buying up all the Star Trek DVDs myself. But when I sat down and watched it, I really remembered the um, the CG Klingon blood at the start. So I must have seen mm-hmm. it once as a kid, but I didn't remember it at all until I rewatched it in my teens. 
But this one is, like, by far the most Star Trek of the Star Trek films. Perhaps. How do you mean? Well, I think partly it is just because you've got the whole crew on the Enterprise, you know, Enterprise in, Star Trek in. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's just... It's the only one that feels like it moves the overall plot of Star Trek forwards. Mm-hmm. In each of the other films, there's like a one-off crisis, they solve it, you kind of reset back to the status quo. But this one, like, is big movements in the, like, the relationship between the Federation and the Klingons. It's like, finally the crew are, like, retiring and going, settling down. It really feels like this one is the sequel to the original series. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, certainly in terms of, like, trying to deal with, like, with, you know, sort of contemporary issues as well. I mean, maybe, I mean, four does that, obviously, because they try and do the, you know, sort of the environmental kind of aspect. But six, I, I would agree. I think it's certainly the one which is maybe most true to the spirit of the of the original series, even though apparently Roddenberry hated it. Uh, when he saw the draft <laughs> before, you know, just before he died, he really, really disliked it. But uh, yeah, um, oh, Roddenberry really? was not always great. The yeah. Only, yeah, yeah, he's apparently. Yeah. The only thing I saw about Roddenberry was um, an interview with Leonard Nimoy, and yeah, he told it that Roddenberry didn't hate it, but at the end he was like, "Oh, but you never really like explained why the Klingons have been so angry all this time." But yeah, <laughs> the more I learn about Roddenberry, I think he's not really the reason Star Trek is so great. <laughs> I know. Well, it's it's kind of a George Lucas situation, I think, to a degree uh, with some of that. It's like creating an amazing sort of universe, an amazing you know sort of uh, world, but not. Uh, yeah, maybe the detail is not always not always so great. And some of the ideas, I mean, I mean, the utopian ideals, I think, are interesting as part of Star Trek, and I think it's a, a core part of it. But you know, you do need the tension there, and that's yeah, you know, what can sometimes make things more interesting, which is certainly what we got with Star Trek Six. And yeah, I think yeah, using sort of the real world contemporary things. But I mean, I, I read uh, just yeah, most recently when I was when I was just after rewatching you know, about how uh, the writers had had you know sort of shown him the script, you know, because he he died uh, before the film came out, like just before the film came out, and uh, they they'd had quite a lot of arguments uh, over it because <laughs> he he really wasn't happy with the with the direction they'd gone because he really didn't like the sort of the the military tone uh, to the whole thing like the sort of the naval sort of military tone and because he felt it was too sort of combative which is i mean and that's one of the things i've always most enjoyed about this style of star trek film and one of the reasons why i really strongly dislike uh, the more like star trek discovery and all those you know these more recent films the the other films and the original series and Next Generation as well, and it was a Deep Space Nine, had that very sort of strong sort of naval feel to them as well, you know, for how combat was, you know, undertaken and, uh, you know, how the ships were run. And it felt very grounded and very sort of real, you know, to a degree. And I, that's what I feel has been lost from Star Trek um, over the last, you know, since, you know, since they rebooted it recently, which is a shame. Oh, yeah, they used to be submarine movies, but now they try and be dogfighting movies, Stop. which isn't quite yeah. the same. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I love Star Wars. I, you know, it's I obviously I did Star Calls, you know, from that. I really like it. But the one of the reasons I like Star Trek is because it is different to that. It's it is like you said, it's submarine films, and that's much, I find that much more interesting. You know, these slow, you know, big slow moving ships. You know, it's like you know tactics, not just loads of explosions all over the place. You know, that kind of thing. It's um, yeah, it's more much more engaging. And I think a lot of that does come from the director nick meyer because the wrath of khan is the one where they really start pushing that you know uh horatio hornblower sort of angle of course he's back in i mean before he had a hand in the script writing and here he's back in the director's chairs 
well. So there is a lot of con DNA simply from having the uh, same director, even if the story and the pacing is quite different here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, I heard I mean, the other thing I, you know, that I sort of always heard about this was that he was sort of persuaded to direct because there was the issue about if it was going to be Leonard Nimoy, that would cause a problem for William Shatner because he wasn't very happy about the idea that Nimoy would, would uh, direct another film and he'd only got one stab at it, and uh, which had obviously gone how it did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was the good compromise, I guess. But I think, I mean, because May was, was brilliant. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's just such, I mean, also the other thing that I found interesting when I rewatched it the other day is just, it's, it's, it's a very tight film. Like in, it's only what, like an hour and 50 minutes long. And it's just, you know, sort of scene, scene, scene. It's, it's, there's no sort of, you know, filler or anything like that. Although obviously the director's cut has quite a lot of extra material that was, um, sort of excised from it, which also gives more context as well. I mean, like, you know, the stuff at the end with the, uh, Klingon who, you know, tries the, attempts the assassination. And in the director's cut of that, you find that it's not a Klingon. It's actually a human with, like, you know, prosthetics on and things like that, which they just removed, which completely changes, like, quite a lot of the plot. But it was sort of removed. It's, yeah, it's strange. Yeah, very strange. You know, um, we said the same thing about Khan, that it's just, there's absolutely no fat on that movie. Every scene serves the plot, moves it forwards. So yeah, May is just obviously very good at getting out a tight film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really yeah. good. It's, yeah. I guess I'll take a moment to crank out that story then. Make it so. Captain Hikaru Sulu, commanding the Excelsior, experiences a massive compression wave near Klingon space while on patrol. It turns out that Praxis, the Klingon's power station moon, has exploded and their empire only has 50 years left. Captain Spock uses this opportunity for the Federation to make peace with the Klingons and signs up Captain Kirk and the Enterprise to take that first step. Kirk is not particularly happy about this, as Klingons are responsible for the death of his son. Regardless, the Enterprise sets out to meet the Klingon Chancellor in neutral space. They all have an awkward, drunken party together to smooth things over before everyone just goes to bed. Things get real, though, when the Enterprise seemingly launches a photon torpedo at the Klingon ship, crippling them, while two guys in Federation spacesuits beam a beam aboard to assassinate the Klingon Chancellor. Kirk and Dr. McCoy beam over in a show of good faith to try and save the Chancellor's life. This does not work out, however, and Kirk and McCoy are scuttled away to a Klingon tribunal and then to the icy prison planet of Ruapenthe. The Enterprise is ordered to return home, but Spock has the crew help them stall as they must find the assailants before reaching space dock so they can exonerate Kirk and McCoy. It also turns out that the photon torpedo originated from a Klingon ship that can fire while still cloaked, commanded by the intimidating General Chang. Conspiracy is afoot, and Spock goes as far as to mind-rape his former Vulcan protege Valeris to seek out answers. The Enterprise manages to receive Kirk 
and retrieve Kirk and McCoy and warps its way towards Kittimer, the location of the Klingon Federation Peace Conference, where the new Klingon Chancellor will also be assassinating, assassinated, destroying all chance of peace. General Chang's cloaked ship stands in their way, but the Enterprise runs that particular gauntlet with the help of Sulu's Excelsior and Trek's predilections to tech the tech. The assassination is averted, conspirators are revealed, and the whole senior Enterprise crew gets a polite golf clap from the Peace Conference crowd. like that was literally just put in there for Shatner's ego well done okay. good job yep you're still the best bye bye retire yeah, like, yes. <laughs> it's like the way with the credits that you know like he's the last person to you know do you know do the signature on the credits and like they do like the Star Trek theme you know for him and yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah. oh <laughs> I'd forgotten they that... do the signatures thing so when I was yeah. watching Endgame last year I didn't realise they were ripping this off yeah. <laughs> did I do that in that as well? Because yeah. I'm not. You see, that I'm actually. My wife and I have been doing like a uh, Avengers uh, sort of marathon. Like we've we've watched because we when the when the series sort of began, we were living in China at the time, and we kind of missed like most of it, and then just didn't bother when we got back. So like over the last the over the last six months or so, we've just been watching one a one a week kind of thing, and uh, yeah, we just we just got to Endgame, but we don't know what's going to happen. So oh, we've nice. managed to. We've managed to avoid spoilers the entire time, but uh, that's impressive. <laughs> but yeah, looking forward to that. But yeah, that's about like avoiding Star Wars spoilers at this point, or original trilogy spoilers, right? <laughs> Don't listen to our podcast then, because for the first six months we were constantly bringing up Endgame. <laughs> we didn't spoil it too much, though. We just kind of—I think we were talking more about the aesthetics most of the time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for this one, uh, I mean, well, we can talk about the main actors, but shall we go around the edges first? Um, the main one, of course, Christopher Plummer is fantastic here. He's very entertaining, but I didn't really feel like the conflict with him like I did with some of the previous villains. Maybe that's what Roddenberry didn't like. <laughs> It might be that. I mean, it's also. I mean, I think he was he was having a very good time. I think with <laughs> with the part, even though apparently he he refused it the first time, and then they had to sort of persuade him to do it. But he seems to be sort of enjoying himself. Um, but I, I mean, I'd agree that he's playing a sort of. Um, I wouldn't say it's like a sort of a cardboard sort of villain sort of character, but it's yeah, you know, quoting all the you know, all the, the lines and the quotes that he uses all the time. It there doesn't feel like there's a massive sort of personal enmity between him and Kirk. It's more sort of they're sort of like, you know, sort of digging each other out rather than, uh, you know, sort of true sort of uh, warrior enemies with each but other. I think that's deliberate, right? Because it's even, he says explicitly, like, he respects Kirk and he just, he wants to keep the war going. So mm-hmm. it, it, if they fully hated each other and you were like, yeah, get him, Kirk, it wouldn't mm-hmm. quite have the same impact as here where it's like, actually, we don't want a war. So it would be better mm-hmm. if Kirk didn't have to kill him. But unfortunately, he does. Well, he's kind of the, uh, you know, 
on a different plane, you and I would be friends sort of villain. Although he's too busy quoting to actually say anything like that. Um, I should mention he's, there's so much plumber going on. Uh, he, yeah, he's not particularly Klingon, you know, with all the, the quoting. It's just, it's just fun to watch him, I guess. Well, yeah, but, you know, Shakespeare's best in the original Klingon. Yeah, true. Which he gives in English. How, what a, what a um, hypocrite. <laughs> but it's funny because I mean most of the the Klingons in this don't feel very much like Klingons from other you know from other films or other series really it feels I mean it feels to me like they sort of I wouldn't say they humanized them but they did try and sort of you know sort of show them to be you know, you know not the same but obviously you know sort of you know not just sort of villainous characters you know that they actually have their own stake here you know they are you know they you know they have they have a right to survive as well it was yeah well, and of course, this whole film is a huge stepping stone between, like, TOS and TNG. So they had to show the Klingons developing somewhat. Even down yeah, to the we'd fact already that they had... wear the TNG, like, outfits and stuff now. We'd already had Worf on the bridge for four years when this came out, which could be a bit of a, uh, you know, disconnect if you're just going through all the, previous to this, going through all the TOS stuff and then jumping ahead. It's like, well, something happened. But, yeah, obviously, we in this case, it's probably worth showing what happened, which which they did. The one thing I will say about um, General Chang's character is, you know, it makes it even more ridiculous that they made... Um, I can never remember his real name. They made Dr. Brown wear brown face when they just let Chris Plummer be his own natural skin tone. Well, his request, um, one of the things where they convinced him to do the role was basically, we'll do like minimal makeup prosthetics right. on you because he wasn't, he wasn't down with that. Is that so? I didn't, I didn't know that. That's, that's... Yeah, if you look at his ridge is much smaller. Uh, same with... The the uh, I guess it's the female chancellor. She's yeah, the daughter. Her Klingon makeup's very toned down. Um, and any uh, I think David Warner, who plays the the assassin um, chancellor, they gave him just a little bit of an Abe Lincoln look on purpose with that with that beard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can definitely see that. But they were visually trying to make the Klingons like a little less alien. This one, you know, very different than Discovery, where they try and make them look a lot more alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get a lot of variety yeah. with them here. Yeah, I was never. I'm absolutely not a fan of the Discovery Klingons at all. <laughs> yeah, the lack of the lack of hair got me. So, and then oh, the first season where they just have the like, we did rewatch some of Discovery, and I think the subtitles were off. And uh, no, they're in Japanese because my family were watching it. And just those Klingon scenes with no subtitles because they go on for like five minutes and they're all talking slowly. Ooh, so we don't get that here. That's nice. The, the Klingon just goes in straight up English. <laughs> The other thing I didn't like with Discovery is they all had the fake teeth, so they had to do that, I am wearing a costume voice all the time. Oh, yeah, that's, I guess, why those five-minute slogs got me. And I should come out and say, I don't hate Discovery. I like Discovery fine, but uh, that oh, yeah, was not it, my but... favorite. That was not my favorite part. <laughs> I do miss, you know, the older Star Treks, even though I don't hate Discovery. I would say have a look at Lower Decks. It has kind of a TNG vibe. I mean, a stupid TNG vibe, but that's intentional, right? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually quite enjoyed Lower Decks. It's um, yeah, the, the humor doesn't always land. I don't think, but yeah, it does. It feels more, yeah, to me, like something like TNG. Um, it certainly feels more like that. But it's got a beating Trek heart, which of course this movie has as well. But <laughs> um, any other 
periphery, not periphery, I don't, calling David Warner and Christopher Plummer periphery is weird, but yeah, go we ahead. We have David Bowie's wife in here. Yeah, I, I didn't say her name because I don't know how to pronounce the I. I'm going to say Iman, but I don't know if that's correct. Okay, I'm not either. That's one of those names I've seen in print quite a bit, but uh, yeah. That she was, she's pretty, I mean, she's just, she's kind of cardboard, right? But she has a striking look, one for being a very attractive lady, and then with the feathers added to it and all that, so. And the yellow eyes as well. Oh, yes, of course. Well, yeah, I don't know, with eyes, you're just like, well, he probably married someone with the color eyes. But yes, of course, uh, contacts. <laughs> <laughs> Bowie didn't need contacts to have weird-looking eyes. <laughs> I was going to say, her scenes get us into the most, like, Star Trek V-ish territory, I think. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'd say, I mean, I that the whole the whole escape from Repente, I think, is one of the probably the weaker part of the film. I'd say it's it's not. I mean, it doesn't work in some ways. I mean, like logically, some of the stuff doesn't work. I mean, the whole idea about you know Kurt being tracked and stuff like that—he's wearing the same clothes. It's it's you know logically, it doesn't seem to work so well. That patch was really big too, by the way. Yeah, so obvious. <laughs> It's like, and also, how did he not notice that he put it on his back? I mean, if somebody stuck that on me, it's like almost wearing like a, a note saying like "kick me" or something. It looked like a, cat, a black caterpillar or something. Yeah, it's like it was pretty obvious. But then, I mean, also the stuff, the scenes in the prison. I mean, I don't, yeah, you know, I'm not sure that they entirely worked. And yeah, you know, the idea that you know McCoy and, and Shatner, not Shatner, Kirk, even, you know, would be able to like survive somewhere like that is a bit at that age <laughs> almost certainly they would have been assassinated immediately but uh, obviously you know it, it can't work out like that but also yeah i'd say yeah the escape i don't know i wasn't wasn't a huge fan of that i, I as i said i think it's the week i think this is a scene where you're perfectly valid in calling him shatner not kirk yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that scene shatner gets to have with himself very stupid it's it's fun to watch just as he completely Shatner's all of his intonations, but <laughs> obviously he couldn't act with himself, like do the split screen thing very effectively. Well, he did it before, I guess, in the original show, but that was also hammy, so. Yeah, yeah they don't even look directly at each other. They're both looking at the camera in these scenes. <laughs> Which is the one in the, uh, I, I can't remember episode titles, but yeah, the one where we get the, the it's kind of Logie Kirk and the super aggressive Kirk. Oh, there's, uh, there's like a transporter accident one, right? Yeah, yeah I can't remember the name of it. Is that, is that <laughs> not the enemy within, or is it? It might be. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, so I was sitting here, like, kind of half looking at my notes and realizing that um, I was looking at Star Trek Four notes the whole time. It's <laughs> like, why does none of this make sense? There's no whales in this film. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to mention the the Nutney alien for some reason. Uh, Oh, the alien. Knee nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being very Star Trek V, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, see, that's my favorite joke from Men in Black 2 is basically that, where he's fighting an alien and he's like, he's a bull chinian. And then he punches him in the chin because that's where his balls are. Oh, I said that that would be the dumbest alien in Trek if not for the packlets. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, do you guys remember them? What's wrong with the packlets? Come on. Our ship, it don't work. And then they're like, just like, a rage, uh, torturing Jordy in the most ridiculous way possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they were underestimated, though. You know, they still did, they did pretty well, you know, considering, uh, you know, what was, you know. 
That one, that I do remember at Samaritan Snare. That's someone I would like to see uh, make a, a Trek reappearance sometime, just for the absurdity of it. Come on, touch that one, someone. <laughs> yeah, I want to see them try that in 2020. <laughs> oh, heart, heartthrob Christian Slater showing up. I didn't know that actually his mom was the casting director. I don't think it was that he was necessarily a giant Trek fan, like like you know Whoopi Goldberg showing up, but that um, maybe he was. But yeah, mom was just like, oh, my son's famous. Let's stick him in for a second to bring the kids in. Yeah, it really is like a blink and you'll miss it role, isn't it? That's yeah. on the Excelsior, yeah. Yeah, isn't it? Where yeah. he, yeah, he sort of tells, yeah, he tries to say that you know we need to f- tell them where the Enterprise is, and he's like, yeah, you got the hearing problem bit. Yeah, I was expecting him to at least show up on the bridge again after that or something, but it's just that little cameo, I think. we get into Sulu so I'm guessing that at this point in their careers there was some big old beef between Takei and Shatner because they're never even on the same set right right uh, that was how Sulu got a ship I guess yeah but uh yeah I mean logistically it doesn't make sense they are on the same set in the end aren't they, they oh yeah they do both land the, at the end they don't have to talk to each other though so you may have a point there <laughs> I mean, I, I love that Sulu now gets to have his own ship and be a captain and stuff, and that he seems to be the only one who isn't just, you know, reminiscing about past glories and hanging out on the Enterprise. But, yeah, you can tell that there's something going on there. I, of course, in the meeting, of course, Kirk didn't even ask where Sulu, the meeting, the boardroom meeting at the beginning. Because <laughs> he's like, everyone's here. He didn't ask where Sulu. I mean, George Takei was really into the idea of being the captain of the Excelsior as well. Because, I mean, you, you know, there was the whole campaign that he tried to do to try and get his own series, you know, with this. You know, he, he sort of you know, tried to get fans to petition Paramount and everything to do like a Captain Sulu, Sulu series, you know, like uh, with him and the Excelsior. He was he was very into that idea. Uh, but, yeah, obviously it didn't, uh, it didn't turn out. Well, even as far Maybe back as Star Trek the... 4, there's the little line where he's like, ooh, I'm hoping for the Excelsior. Hmm. Everything works out for Sulu. Maybe Takei not so much. Although he seems to be doing pretty groovy these days, so whatever. Yeah, he's like the internet's <laughs> grandpa now. He's happy. Um, I guess with the characters, um, in that escape we mentioned, that we definitely get Shatner, but um, who is in that boardroom in the beginning? That that angry old man who's pissed at the Klingons. Are we looking at Shatner or Kirk there? That's like some of the most characterization Kirk's had since the original series, I think. Yeah, maybe I guess that's where I was like reading. And are we are we getting a little more Shatner here? I, he's emoting harder, maybe because this is the last time around the track. I don't know. But I think it um it particularly works as like it makes him very distinct from TNG and Picard. We've often talked about how really, if you watch the actual shows, Kirk and Picard are not that different. But here in the movies, Kirk is old and like out of time. And it's kind of saying, like, it is time to let this crew go and that, you know, the new crew of the future. But then also still having that sort of, like, 
wanting to let go, but then also wanting to make sure that the future there's going to be is the one that you'd want it to be, you know, and uh, that's where you get the conflict over, you know, what to do with the Klingons, because you know, they can't leave that to everyone else. It's like, it's like that's still got to be resolved. I was going to say, ultimately, although they, they foil the assassination and everything, he does leave the future to, you know, younger people, the Chancellor and everyone. But he has to learn to do that. Yeah, because they, they all just fly into a sun in the end. I, I like the idea of that ending where they do just fly into a star and burn up and that's it. That's that's how I watched it this time around. That's what I assumed happened. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that star was the second star to the right. And so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh one one person that doesn't get a character arc here is is spock really because we've talked about how we keep reloading spock and you know of course two three four it's it's once again spock learning again but here it's, it's just it's a basically a balanced spock which is we haven't really gotten since the original series well, the, um in two he's pretty much balanced spock right so this is that one again well then he gets yeah. killed though right <laughs> Yeah, I guess he has to live at the end here. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert if you're listening to the Star Trek 6 podcast. <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff that Spock does in this film, is, I mean, that scene on the bridge with... Uh, uh, Valaris, oh, I think. Name. Valaris. Is it Valaris? Yeah, that, that's, still, that's always been a relatively hard to watch scene because he basically is like straight up mind raping her. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, you're watching this and you're thinking, this is awful like actually what's going on here i mean it's he's uh you know massively invading you know some somebody from... oh oh and here's the thing the thing that really got me this time because i guess i i just never noticed for it he he fails to get the information from valeris and then they just like uh call up sulu and sulu's like oh yeah it's over there yeah <laughs> well yeah, but he gets the names of the conspirators from her oh right he went but he doesn't get the location which and then after the call just calls up uh sulu oh yeah it's a it's over at yeah. No problem. <laughs> when you're watching one of the newer things, you know, one of the Kelvin films or Discovery, people really kick off about the mind meld being misused. But here's Spock misusing it in, like, one of the most beloved films. Um, the, the rest of the bridge crew... The rest of the bridge crew, I guess, really got more to do in four. We just talked to uh, four, and you know they have quite a bit to do there. Here, they they get a few nice lines and things, but... um. Yeah, they're back to their role from the TV show here. They just follow follow orders and that's about it yeah i guess they just don't have much to do on the ship i don't know to get them off the ship they have more to do well yeah you know uhura gets to man the phones Chekhov gets to use the steering wheel and scotty does the engine but that's really it they're just actually doing their jobs in this one even mccoy really doesn't have a big role in this one so yeah among the 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 main crew it's really just Kirk and Spock who get to do anything in this one. Even McCoy, he's along for the ride, but he doesn't make any big decisions or play a huge role other than trying to save the Chancellor. Yeah, I was going to say he's fun in the passenger seat. He certainly gets wonderful lines, but he's he's just uh, he's in the yeah. Although I guess seat. that's all McCoy's ever done. He's just there to stand next to Kirk and moan. Well, he got a you know in the original show he, he got his uh, a casual episode like that one with the weird asteroid inner planet thing yeah the salts that, that was with the with that salt monster as well oh wasn't that, oh, that was the, yeah that was the first aired episode yeah uh like 
yeah, I think we just passed the anniversary of that when they had Star Trek Day for it. <laughs> and that's that's the original, like, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I guess, is, is it the bricklayer? No, I think, that's, the, I that think that's a later monster. Um, my favorite moment in this movie is... A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my favorite um, McCoy... My favorite moment in this film is a McCoy moment. Well, on that. Okay, I was wondering if anyone would guess, but um, when he tries to tell a joke at the Klingon trial, like one person laughs, and then he has just like this beaming smile on his face. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> <laughs> he got the joke. He looks real old in that scene. <laughs> but he looks so happy. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, I, I enjoyed that quite well. <laughs> I guess the other actor slash character to talk about is Valaris. Um, the crazy thing is... I remembered this as being Savick. Who it was supposed to be. I think that's where Roddenberry put his foot down. Yeah, originally it was going to be him, wasn't it? Uh, her, rather. But then, yeah, they, yeah, Roddenberry was not pleased about that because they were like, people like this character and then you're going to ruin her, you know, by uh, by her being, uh, you know, a villain, as it were. But, I mean, I thought I thought Kim Cattrall was great. I thought she played she it very well. well it's, but it's just, it's, she's a... She's brought in as the new character, so... Oh, I wonder who's going to be the traitor. Is it this one we've never seen before? <laughs> oh, and with the um, time compression in this movie, it seems like they they have the party, they're sent to um, rural Penthe, they get back, it's all like within like two days, right? I was the impression so, it was about a week, but... Maybe. I was just wondering how long uh, Scotty's hangover was, if he's actually drunk through this entire movie, as he was in five. <laughs> Actually, I guess at this point in his life, Sky's just always drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know that he's not drinking more Romulan ale when he's not on camera. Yeah. <laughs> no bar fights. I guess he's a little out of shape for them, this one. but At least he doesn't bang his head on anything. But yeah, she's perfectly good. She plays very convincing Vulcan. And she does a good job of like... Oh yeah, she is the villain, but you understand. She's not just a snarling... I want to kill everybody, villain. She has no sideburns, though, and that annoys me. <laughs> Just swoop, and it's completely skinny, skin by the ear, and it, and it looks weird. Vulcans should have that sideburn, I feel like. And maybe she's just, you know, she's one of those uh, style hounds or something. Well, it's Kim Cattrall. Sure, she's a style hound. There we go. Sex in the City and all that. I mean, maybe she had a terrible accident, Matt, and lost her sideburns. They could. Uh, I I remember hearing a, actually reading in movie memories uh, for generations where um, Shatner's daughter's like, oh, you don't have the Kirk sideburns, so he actually had to add them on for generations. He didn't grow them out. <laughs> well, I think he had to add on his entire hairdo for generations, so that makes sense. Have you have you done generations yet? Have you talked? No, we've about been pretty it? much working through them in order so far. We weren't okay. planning to, but then we just yeah, ended I mean, up getting enough people on that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Generations is a... I don't know, I, I have very mixed feelings about that film. And, uh, yeah, in some ways I wish it didn't exist. But um, in other ways, you know, I, I did, there's parts of it I did enjoy. But uh, I still feel that this was... They kind of should have left it for the original crew at this. This would have been... This was the perfect send-off, I feel, with Six. Well, they didn't all show up for generations. That was, I guess, one of the problems. It's just like, here's just a, just a few to make it seem you know, legit enough. <laughs> but don't hold your breath for, you know, McCoy or Spock, right? 
I have huge nostalgia for Generations, but I'm convinced that if I go back to it, it's not going to hold up. I just remember, as a kid, the idea of Shatner and Picard being on screen together was mind-blowing enough on its own. There's a great scene at the beginning of that film where where they're on the bridge of the um, of the new Enterprise with you've got like you know you've got Scotty and you've got uh, Kirk and you can tell in the way that they're talking to each other that they really dislike each other like just the the delivery the delivery is yeah it, they you can tell that they're they're not keen uh, on We're spending any more money. time with each other yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As far as like design elements in this movie go, um, there's not a whole, Aurora Penthes new. That's cool. Um, is this the first time we see like the Klingon tribunal space? I feel like we're we're used to seeing that a few more times in the future. I think they were reusing a TNG set for that. And an actor. <laughs> no, most. Of, I mean, this this film was made to be as. Yeah, sort of as cheaply as possible. They did. I mean, as, as far as I know, most of the stuff was all recycled from Next Generation. Um, and yeah, they they reused all that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's probably why the aesthetic is so similar, really. But that works. See, I felt that with three that they were reusing a lot of stuff. This one, yeah, I guess this. I I guess after five, you would have your your uh, cost cutting film. But yeah, I, to Nick Meyer's credit, this one never occurred to me as like being a cost saver. Well, it's because it's not using. It's not reusing things from, like, the last film you just watched. It's reusing things from all over the TV show, so it's a little more subtle about it. Yeah, I guess they spent their, their design budget on those giant clocks that are all over the bridge, which I find annoying, by the way. <laughs> I do, yeah, every time I see those, I wonder why they're there. Because it's, like, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Because you just think, in space, you know, star dates, all that kind of thing, time probably doesn't look exactly the same uh, in, in this way. It's a, you know, it's a bit odd. But uh, yeah. No film except Inception ever, not Inception, Interstellar, ever gets into that. The fact that time is different across space. They're just like, you have to ignore that in these films. Well, they do have their whole warp thing, right? But, like, they have, they have conversations with each other in real time even though time would be traveling at different rates in their different locations. Yeah. Sorry, James, I think you had a point to make and you had one of your cutouts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms, in terms of design, I'd say, I mean, you're right. It doesn't look like a cheap film at all. I mean, it's still, you know, they, they sort of, they nail that without it, you know, looking like it's, it's, I mean, it's not what I'm trying to say. It's not Superman four. Like it, it really looks, you know, like it's like, you know, work has been put into it. I guess Ruapente, the uh, caves were just the uh, quote hell set from TNG. Mm-hmm. I, I said it's like a colder temple of doom with fewer children, but I, and that was my quote. But then when I started thinking about it, I was like, oh, it's probably that set they use for you know like um, uh, the training and chain of command, for example. Although it's in like half of the TNG episodes, that was just the first one that came to mind. But yeah, it's um, 
it's Nicholas Meyer's like talent that he can make a cheap film look good because he does the same thing with Khan as well. And I think it goes back to what we were saying about the, the very tight script. He only spends exactly as much as he needs to. So by only having like two or three space scenes in the whole film, they look great. He did need the clocks, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because he, he, he wrote uh, Rutha Khan very quickly, didn't he? So as far as I know, it was like two or three weeks or whatever. The script was kind of done. And I mean, obviously loads of editing went on, but it was still very, uh, very quick turnaround. And the same with this as well. And I mean, apparently, you know, that there was there was so many other options they were going to go for with this film as well. Like so many other sort of different directions. I mean, even uh, Walter Koenig like, had an idea of what he wanted the film to be. And fortunately, it didn't come to fruition because if you're bored, just you can have a look and Google that. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, but then there was also there was also I mean, there's the Starfleet Academy thing again as well. They were going to go back you know, to try and begin again, but with like younger Kirk, you know, younger Spock. Yeah, which obviously they did with uh, with Abrams, but they were going to do it earlier. And I I don't know. You see, I've never liked that idea anyway. I've always I've always felt like I wanted to see things moving forward. I I don't like the sort of going back, you know, to the sort of the beginning again. And uh, yeah, but because apparently it was going to be, I think it was going to be uh, what's his name, uh, McCoy, like sort of talking to some cadets or whatever about the old days, and then it would have gone back to them, you know, sort of you know one of their earlier adventures or whatever. But in the end, uh, Shatner and uh, Nimoy weren't weren't keen on the idea, and then they came up with the Cold War, which obviously works a lot better. I'm very glad that they did go ahead and make this film because, it, like you say, it's a perfect send off for the old cast and the Cold War stuff, which I guess we'll probably get into in a minute. But I I actually really like that. Well, the first half of the 2009 film, I do like all the Academy stuff, but overall, I'm so bored of Star Trek giving us prequels now. Where's the next the next generation? Where's the real like future new ideas, new sci fi, new politics, new Star Trek? Well that had been on TV for four years at this point. No, but it's but, not. Yeah. It's all prequels. <laughs> it's... it's all still old timelines. I want like what comes next. Like Picard gave us a hint of it, but we didn't really get to see it. Oh, you're talking the big picture, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> See, and, that, and that's what I was most... I mean, I was. that's one of the things... I mean, there's many things I was honestly disappointed with with Picard, but one of them was that I... Like, see, the politics, the political side of things, you know, the you know, alien races, that kind of thing, is one of the things I've always been most fascinated by, and that just doesn't feature, really. You know, not, not in any sort of uh, great depth. One of the other reasons why I liked Deep Space Nine so much is because it was all about the sort of the, uh, you know, intergalactic politics that was going on. I, I hate to throw out the read the novel line, but yeah, the last best hope, the uh, Picard novel actually does have quite a bit of politics uh, leading up to the show. You know, you shouldn't have to read it to get the show, but yeah, they have like, I mean, things with like politics with, you know, representatives from colony worlds and all this stuff. And if you do want the politics side, uh, I would recommend reading that book, um, which gets into it a lot deeper than say this movie does so uh, that cold war stuff then i think picard had more of it than say like the kelvin films or even a lot of discovery did but still it was no like tng yeah i mean that's i you know i mean the thing is the thing with picard as well is like the first the first couple of episodes i really quite enjoyed i thought it was a it was a good start i just felt it tailed off quite badly um you know towards you know particularly towards the end i thought that's a dreadful ending it was almost um, a great ending and then they just didn't have the balls to go through with it. What well, ended? It it ended with a TNG two parter, didn't it? <laughs> 
like like you know Times Era, one of the ones that you know it's kind of nice to watch, but definitely wasn't one of the uh, the best of both worlds. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I, let's do a little bit of that Cold War talk. You know, I'm always I, always interested in the politics as well. I don't like to emotionally invest myself in them, but you know, it's interesting. You don't have to emotionally invest yourself in Cold War politics anyway. <laughs> Okay, I guess we're resegmenting then on that that whole thing. So I'll try it again. Cold War, Cold War. Yeah, well, James, I brought you on just because I've like I listened to your other podcast and you've mentioned Star Trek a few times. I wanted to chat Trek with you, but as it happens, um, you've mentioned in the past that the reason you got into Chinese history was because you had an interest in the Soviet Union originally. So I've kind of brought in the perfect guest for this podcast. I think. <laughs> maybe i don't know i mean it's 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 funny because i mean i i was always interested in i mean when i was growing up it was uh obviously the cold war was still going on and the war still existed and i remember when i used to watch tv like with my with my with my family like especially on the news they were they were always talking about the soviet union they're always talking about you know what was going on there and you know how you know bad things constantly and i i always wanted to know why like what's the problem like why you know why is you know why is this you know another side which is maybe you know that we we don't agree with or whatever you know this kind of thing and so that's how i kind of got into studying it and then i you know obviously went to university and i, I studied history that's my that was my uh, undergraduate degree and uh, yeah i studied soviet history and which i found very interesting and that's how i ended up getting into chinese history because they share a kind of a, a revolutionary sort of um history with each other but that's again maybe that's one of the other reasons why i've always found uh the Star Trek films so interesting because they were trying to mirror a lot of what was going on, particularly during the Cold War period. But I mean, in the in the original series, you have those episodes where you've got like these proxy wars that are going on, and you know where they're basically aping what's what was going on in the real world. You know, where you had uh, America arming other 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 countries and Soviet Union doing the same, and sort of having standoffs with each other. And that's why I mean, with six, you end this you know this this point where they're obviously they're taking something like the Chernobyl incident and turning this into, you know, this click moon exploding. And then how do you deal with this when one side has been so, I mean, Chernobyl absolutely weakened the Soviet union, but it was, it wouldn't, it, it's a bit of a stretch to say it was part of the, you know, the downfall of the system. Um, but it obviously did have a major impact. And then it's this idea of like, how do you deal uh, with an adversary that you've had and how do you think about, do you, you know, how can you reintegrate them um, into the systems that you're running? And, that's that's what I found most interesting about this film was this idea of like you know do you do you take that upon yourself to try and make a difference and try and change things or do you use this as to your advantage um, to you know, sort of further your own ambitions and if we I mean if we see what's happened with Russia and the Soviet Union I mean the 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 West I'd say you know in general 
made huge mistakes at the end of the at the end of the uh, the Cold War in terms of how to handle uh, you know the, the fall of the Soviet Union, how to handle the new sort of the Russian Federation, and because perhaps they were not open enough in in dealing with them, and uh, that's why uh, from this film it's quite interesting to see Spock, you know, having this idea of you know we can we can coexist, but we can also if we work together, which is a, a yeah, different approach. I was sitting here thinking, because I think when I first saw the movie, I was also like, well, Chernobyl didn't kill the Soviet Union, whereas here we get, it's a space opera, so it's an exploding moon that, you know, robs a Klingon to their power. But I am, I was sitting here thinking, is that, it's, I mean, they certainly lost a lot of face, even probably among the Soviet people after Chernobyl. So, I mean, the power wasn't a big deal, but the loss of reputation, the loss of faith, the loss of trust might have been sort of the straw to break the camel's back. Um, we get something much more bigger than a straw, of course, in Star Trek VI. But eh, sometimes you got to beat people over the head a little bit harder with the metaphor and film, I guess. But I mean, one one of the points that um, that Spock makes in the film is very close to reality. For one point, where he says, uh, you know, the Klingons want to, you know, sort of put an end to hostilities because they can no longer afford it, and that is one of. I mean, that's it's again. The thing with the fall of the Soviet Union is it's it is actually very complicated. It's not as simple as like the Americans managed to outspend them in you know in in weapons build up. It's not as simple as saying you know it's like events such like novel. There's so many factors uh, which are sort of that work together to to create the you know, the end of the of the Union. And but they you know I mean that's it, that is still a major factor like the idea that um you know they so much money was being spent on military that um, they were never probably ever going to use and uh, which could have been used perhaps on uh, on other things well they they literally have the line in in here right that the klingons their economy can't handle it because of their ridiculous military budget mhm yeah they can no longer afford it and it's and it's yeah there is i said there is a there is a connection there uh, with what with what happened in the soviet union but it's it's a connection it's not a uh, yeah it's, it's not the the sole reason depressingly i think that's how like most wars have ended since the world war 2 right it's well we can't afford it anymore yeah, it's just a standoff. I mean, you can't. Not that anyone should ever have an effective war, but um, right. But I mean, it just uh, it shows how pointless the wars we're fighting are. If we like, we can give up on them when they're no longer profitable. Right. Exactly. And um, another film that Luke and I are doing soon. We're doing the. We'll have a lot more to say about this. Uh, I don't know if you started Things to Come yet, but that gets way deep into that that whole idea of not being able to, you know, afford to have the conflict you're still having. Uh, the Federation. I wonder if, well, yeah, I guess the Klingons need to be in the weak place for this film. But yeah, a, a table-turning movie, I wonder how that would have rolled, where the Federation is actually, you know, that that would take a lot away from the utopia aspect, I suppose. But it could be interesting. Yeah, we, we saw glimpses of that with, with yesterday's Enterprise, didn't you, with uh, in Next Generation, you know, where you have... Uh you know, where there has been a, a conflict and, uh, you know, the Klingons are very clearly winning, you know, that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of... Yeah, Starfleet's done like nearly by that point. It's uh, yeah, so they yeah they I think they've kind of tried to explore that a little, but this was probably the only way really they could bring bring the Klingons down to you know to the level where they'd be able to deal with it this way. And it's quite a neat way of doing this in in universe. I think it works very well. One thing which I found a little, I guess, depressing or disappointing. This is the only time in the six TOS movies we see any Romulans. I think. And it's just like yeah, one ambassador. Which is a, and it's a shame because, I mean, honestly, the Romulans have always been my favourite 
of the uh, sort of adversarial yes, races. Yes, <laughs> me too. It's, I love all the Romulan and Vulcan stuff. Yeah, it's the yeah the ships are amazing. You know, I I love the sort of yeah you know, the motivation. You know, the fact that you never really know well you, you never really know what they're up to. And I think yeah, that's that's always been very very interesting. And this, I mean, the character, the Romulan character that you had in this film had a bigger part, like in the director's cut. Like there's there's he's part obviously he's part of the conspiracy, um, but you actually you know get to see sort of parts of that in the director's cut that you don't see in the in the main film. But it's funny because whenever for for many over the over the years, like with all the Star Trek films, whenever they've been sort of talking about writing another one, they've often talked about putting the Romulans in there as being like one of the major sort of antagonists, and it never really happens apart from what we got with uh, with Star Trek Nemesis, uh, which was um, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe not what I what I would really have wanted to, but. It's certainly a culture I think could have been explored in more detail um, because it's a, it's a fascinating. Well, one. it looks like we're finally getting it now. If we do continue with more seasons of Picard, hopefully they'll get deeper and deeper into Romulan stuff. Yeah. You said you're a DS Nine guy. I, in some ways, I kind of feel like the they uh, the Cardassians are kind of like the refined Romulan thing, where they clearly do have their very own culture, which is very alien to yours, but with lots of details. And and uh, Deep Space Nine, I guess they. Didn't, didn't want to go with the Romulans either, so they sort of had their fun with the Cardassians there, which, I, I for me, I eh, maybe they're second to the Romulans or, or on an even keel for me, because Klingons in the end are kind of just, like, you know, often just ram heads together and whatever honor is going to mean this week. But uh, I, I enjoy Klingons because I love a good warrior race and all the, the shouting and bravado and chomping into big legs of meat, but the Romulans with the, the Vulcan aspect are more interesting and I probably will end up liking Cardassians. It's just that I haven't watched much DS9 yet. I'm almost at the end of my TNG rewatch, then I'm going to go back to DS9, because I haven't really seen it since I was a kid. Yeah, DS9 is really something else. It's, um, I mean, the, I, I mean, I'd say if you, I mean, if you, if you start watching that, the first maybe two seasons, as everyone says, are, I wouldn't say they're rough. They're definitely not sort of rough, but they, they don't really sort of, you know, sort of illustrate the sort of the greatness that is to come. Uh, but once it gets to sort of season three and onwards, it becomes. Yeah, yeah. don't worry. I really... struggled through all of the original series and the first few seasons of TNG, so I can handle <laughs> bad track. <laughs> Alamarine. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was quoting what's considered. Yeah, I was quoting one of the. And you yeah, are yeah, one of the. I do what's considered one. one of the worst years. <laughs> I love that episode, to be honest. It's one of those hated ones I love, but. <laughs> it's it stuck with people, though, didn't it? I mean, everyone remembers it because it was, I mean, probably for not the right reasons, but it was it was certainly a very memorable episode. Now, a- Avery, Avery Brook, Brooks really investing himself into those nursery rhymes. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, I have um, an, and I have an ex-girlfriend who was absolutely obsessed with Julian Bashir. So, yeah, <laughs> I've got that to look forward to. I guess I'll tell you. I'd say something funny about that is the the uh, what's it called? The um, Paramount really didn't like him at all. And every season they tried to sack him. They tried to get oh, rid of him all the time. Really? And uh, yeah, they 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 he he was not liked at all. Not not uh, because he you know the actor or anything at all. But they just didn't see the point of his character. Like in the, in the thing at all, so they they kept trying to get rid of him, and then uh, but then they were insistent. Uh, you know, obviously, the showrunners were insistent that he had to stay there, and uh, then they yeah. Well, you'll see. I don't want to say anything because it will ruin stuff. But uh, yeah, okay. well, it took about three years for him to have a point, didn't it? Because he's especially annoying in the first season. That one. <laughs> I mean, you get you get that with quite a few. Uh, yeah, with most of the series, there's there's characters there that I mean, 
I'm still not sure. I mean, there's characters from Enterprise that I still don't know why they were in that show. Like, what? Yeah, why? Why they existed? It's uh, which is a shame. Yeah, I guess I've got Enterprise and Voyager to go after that. So. I said I had one more minor, basically minor point. Yeah, the soundtrack is very good, but uh, back into my Matt's musical corner. The opening theme is basically Mars from Holst uh, Planets, which is annoying for me. <laughs> Just, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's because most of the Star Trek movies at least have like a relatively distinctive theme, and this one is just like, oh, it's a, it's a at the time, 70 or 80 year old tune, which whatever so this movie's music was very functional but i couldn't remember any of it if you asked me to hum the music from star trek 6 right now i couldn't i'd hum mars but yeah. But there are bits and bobs <laughs> from all the previous ones which i could this is not the only movie to do that too there's been there's like 20 different films that just use that theme in like slightly rewritten form mm-hmm. i don't know the, the main theme i, I like it a lot because <laughs> I think, it's, as I said, it's just got an emotional resonance for me, you know, from seeing, you know, particularly then, especially when you, you know, when you see them sort of take off and they're just sort of, uh, you know, this is it, we're done, and they look old, and it looks like this is the right time. I, I do remember pooping myself just a little bit when I first saw the movie and um, the the Praxis explosion rocks out uh, of nowhere. Well, every sci-fi explosion since that has ripped off the shockwave. Yeah, really. <laughs> Even Generations, um, the Nexus has the same sort of cloudy look. Well, even when George Lucas went back and edited Star Wars, he put those into the Death Star explosions. I guess they do look cool. <laughs> I've seen some things with like a physicist being like, yeah, but they don't make any sense. <laughs> they look very cool. And like, could, could the Excelsior not just fly up a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, space is three-dimensional. Yeah, two-dimensional thinking. Yep. <laughs> it's like uh, the, the the infamous uh, Prometheus scene where she's, you know, running from the ship by not running away from the ship. Right. <laughs> Let's go left or right. Just go to the... Yeah, just go left or right. You're fine. It's, <laughs> just don't go... You're choosing the one direction you don't want to choose, okay? You deserve to die. <laughs> Everyone in that movie deserved to die. <laughs> Yeah. I know, sometimes I think I need to go back and watch that again. I've only seen it once, and uh, yeah, I don't remember it being really, really awful. Um, I'll, I'll, we'll do that one at some point. The thing with that movie is, there's things about that movie I really, really absolutely love. There's there's things I absolutely hate, and there's like nothing in between. Everything in that movie, I either love it or hate it. It's all stuck together. That movie is just a compelling argument for why Ridley Scott shouldn't have been allowed to touch Alien after the first one. <laughs> he should, he should be put in George Lucas quarantine. 
Uh, not not Nick Meyer heaven, where he should be allowed to do as many Star Treks as he wants. Oh, you know, one th- thought I had, um, I remember, maybe it's just the first couple episodes of Discovery where he's listed as a associating producer, where I guess they just called him up and asked him a few questions. But I think he pretty quickly dropped out of that one. Yeah, I mean, Discovery's in a weird situation, because, I mean, if you watch the opening of any of those episodes, there's, like, about 50,000, like, produ- producers on that show. It's, it's just, like, tons of them. It's, like, producer after producers, about 15 or 20 of them. So... So many people have got their fingers in the Star Trek pie that it's just a finger pie now. Sorry, I was an American just thinking about that. All I could come up with is the uh, the Beatles song. Is there a Beatles song, Finger Pie? Four efficient finger pie in Penny Lane. Okay. I thought you were going to okay, tell me the finger pie was some euphemism you use in America. Well, you know, dude, last night I gave her the finger pie. Well, Lena and McCartney did say they put in... Well, McCartney said he put in Penny Lane basically also as a euphemism, so... Okay. Because <laughs> they like doing that. The politics of this movie, I guess, don't hold up anymore because these folks actually sit down and discuss things. <laughs> well, they don't... I mean, in a way they don't, but it's not like the Soviet Union was the only enemy the West will ever have or, like, that this situation will come up with. I think... Of course, it was a metaphor for the Cold War, but just as a pure storytelling concept, I think it's pretty timeless. That's how it kind of felt in the 90s, though. It was like, hey, there aren't any enemies anymore, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, Yeah, that's where you get, like, it's it's the Francis Fukuyama, you know, the end of history kind of idea, which is yeah. also one of the reasons why we're in a kind of a mess that we're in now, is because partly of it, because of that kind of concept that, you know, the West had won in inverted commas and that everything was moving in this direction when obviously it doesn't work that well, way. I mean, Kirk even says in this film that it can't work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's an old frump and what does he know? <laughs> but yeah, it was like, yeah, you know, the 90s, like after the Cold War, it's like everything's groovy now, like the Fukuyama and, um, you know, I just said Portlandia is a dream of the 90s. Of course, now Portland's burning in, in multiple ways. But <laughs> so I guess that dream didn't last. Well, it's because that dream only existed for a certain subset of the population. True. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of people where the 90s were probably not so fantastic. So especially if you happen to be living in, you know, a not first world country. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, you know, being ironic, of course, the politics of this movie are still interesting and apply, but it just seems a little more gentlemanly than what we've been seeing in the past few years. Well, I mean, you know, Trump went and had a cheeseburger with Kim Jong-un. It's not like <laughs> this concept is completely dead. Yeah, OK, good point. <laughs> It, it, I wonder if it's maybe, I mean, it's as much the perception we're getting of it. Now the perception we're just being given all this, like, people are screaming at each other, which they were screaming at each other 30 years ago, but people weren't, like, recording at all, so. Yeah. But, I mean. That might be a big difference. Who knows? Maybe the next time they make a Star Trek film, it'll be, Spock will say, well, there's an old Vulcan proverb, only Trump could go to Korea. <laughs> well, they didn't get much out of it. But, uh, you know, apart from some good press at the time, yep. and then now, yeah. not so much. A couple fantastic photos, yes. Fo- definitely a photo op. Yeah, extremely meme-worthy <laughs> photos. <laughs> um, any final thoughts on Star Trek Six? then? I I mean, I think I'll go first, because I didn't see this when it came out. I was born in 1990. 
So all of this is quite academic to me. Um, but I see this film very much as a handover from the old cast to the new cast. This is the end of TOS, the start of TNG. And in that way, it has a very strange, like, the way that Shatner, well, Kirk's character is like, he's out of touch, he's stuck in the past. And the way that the whole film is about, like, oh, we need to let go of these ideas. Although it is a little sad, at the same time, it was kind of felt hopeful and optimistic to me. Like, yeah, you know, the mistakes have been made, but a bright future is ahead of us. And because I'm so much more of a TNG fan than I am a TOS fan, the ending, although I do feel a bit of sadness, I also am like, at the end of that film, I'm like, I'm so excited for Picard and Co.'s adventures. You're ready to go far point. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, I think that is pretty much how this film was viewed at the time. I mean, people, I, that was part of the, um, part of the promotion that this is going to be the bridge between old Trek and new Trek for you. And then they're like, oh, we, maybe we can, you know, squeeze a little more juice out of that lemon and, uh, went for generations as well. I feel like this does that job better than generations does. Well, it does. <laughs> it does. And and I, I don't hate Generations either. Um, You know, I'm like one of those Star Trek's like pizza people, you know, even the, the terrible Trek is kind of like fun. Yeah, I don't think I've ever sat down and watched Trek and not had some some semblance of a good time. I accidentally had a pizza with anchovies a few weeks ago, though, and I didn't like that one. Oh, you know me and fish, so. Yeah. I, it, it, I, you know, after I got it, I realized the Katakana actually did say anchovy, and I just didn't notice as a crap. An- anchovies uh, isn't so. even close to the weirdest shit they put on pizzas here, though. Yeah, with the corn, mayonnaise, and uh, mentaiko, yeah. Do they do, they do the whole thing? Because in, over in China, they used to do all the stuff like putting, like, like, things like peaches and stuff on pizza as well. And, like, just, you get uh, just, like, the ridiculous amount of mayonnaise on everything. Was the, <laughs> the other thing, yeah. Do they do peaches and mayonnaise on the same pizza? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. That I was assuming we were going to say no to that. Okay. <laughs> the other problem is they treat pizza like it's a luxury food here, so it's really expensive. Yeah, my anchovy pizza was a little more than I wanted to pay, and it was the cheapest one on the menu, too. That's the problem is that I went with the cheapest one on the menu. Oops. Right. So, yeah, I only go for pizza if, like, there's a few of us and we're getting about, like, some sort of voucher or deal. If I'm just like on my own, it's like, yeah, I fancy a Domino's tonight. I'm gonna spend like thirty bucks. <laughs> but um, anyway, but, but back to the original metaphor. Uh, Star Trek for me is pizza, and it's pretty rare one's just gonna like not at least slightly entertain me on some level. This one, Star Trek Six, being very entertaining on many levels. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I for me, as I said, this is still one of my favorite. Star Trek films, probably one of my favorite films um, that, I, that I've seen. I mean, the re- I think one of the reasons definitely that I feel sad about it is because I did have that sort of connection with the original crew dry- growing up, not from the original series, but merely more from the films. And I think over those films, you really do see, particularly you see Kirk grow as a character, actually, like quite a lot through through all six of these films. And even, I mean, he's, even as an actor as well, I feel that Shatner gets better as as uh, as the films go on. And that's why I, I felt sad to be saying goodbye at the end of this, because I just thought, you know, this is this is the right time to end. It, you know, it does need to be finished. But also, yeah, this has been a very, very good journey. It's uh, yeah. See, I guess I, I got out of your little predicament because uh, maybe a year or two before this came out, it had the 24 hour 
you know, TOS marathon. So I had just gotten like four VHS tapes of just like, you know, 30 episodes. So there were still some I hadn't like seen so much. So that helped. But I, I saw the show a lot more when I was a kid, too. I saw the movies a lot as well, but we definitely had the show running in the house uh, quite a bit. But um, I, I guess we're wrapping that up. So, uh, James, can you tell our listeners a bit about where they can find the things that you do? Ah, now this is always a bit of a problem because I struggle with this on my own show. <laughs> okay. So anyway, uh, yeah, so I'm from the Computer Game Show, a podcast that I do with um, David Turner, uh, Matt Murray and Sean Bell. And we we release an episode every week, usually on a Wednesday. Uh, we also do uh, we do streaming as well. I mean, I stream on Fridays. In fact, I'm streaming Bridge Crew at the moment um, that I'm playing with um, with Sean, uh, which has been very fun. It's been very, very good. And uh, yeah, I mean, we are at uh, TCGS co i think it is that's what matt would probably tell me to say and on on twitter on anything you can find us as the computer game show on on uh, on itunes and uh yeah or any other podcast service but yeah but give us a listen uh, we enjoy doing the show yeah i'm looking forward to watching your bridge crew i've actually got it queued up in my youtube every now and then i think oh i'm gonna watch one of your streams live and then i remember that involves waking up at 5 a.m yeah that is a problem <laughs> <laughs> It was that was a pain when I was when I was living in China and I used to try I used to play Xbox Live still with with David actually mostly and Matt sometimes and it was like meant getting up at like four or five in the morning or whatever to play with them and it was just it was horrible and also the internet was was garbage as well that's you know it was like it was you know lag lag was terrible the only game we ever could play was Left 4 Dead because it was it had it was like it had its own servers and so anything that was peer to peer was useless because it was just the lag was just too heavy but so uh, yeah. Yeah, I still play a bit of Monster Hunter and stuff with folks back home, but um, for my first two years in this apartment, I didn't have internet. I was just using mobile data, including when I did these podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's why we only had two guests a month at that point. (laughs) And also, those are the only people that would talk to us. (laughs) Um, He got the letter so out. He got his letters out so well i'm just gonna throw them straight to you today Luke. okay if you want to find our podcast we're on twitter at mlsfs pod or you can just find us on facebook youtube itunes search matt and luke sci-fi sanctuary um we'd love it if you get in touch people don't but you know who uses itunes anymore <laughs> it's not a thing it's apple podcast now we don't call it itunes anymore give us a review on apple podcast that's apple podcast folks that's where you rate and review. Okay. I, we have to change our nomenclature, I guess. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, um, I'm team l- Fortnite. Fuck Apple. <laughs> Luke loves Pokemon at Luke loves PKMN at something. Man, I got those letters out. Why yeah, can't I get why, why is mine easier than the podcast you're actually on? Yeah, if you like Pokemans, you can listen to my other podcast, Luke Loves Pokemon. And if you like the music you heard during this podcast, you can find Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com I promise to you I've never ripped off Mars from the planets. I've ripped off plenty of other stuff probably <laughs> though. So <laughs> Probably more like rock and roll. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thank you, James, for having a chat with us. We did get up that early in the morning for this one. So <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me on. I've been, it's, been, it's been good. I've enjoyed, uh, yeah, enjoyed this. Yeah, it was fun. But now, James, you... And the listeners at home can go forth into the undiscovered country.
to the future too. through the Dynasty song. John King's got cream that takes the cake. Mesmerizing with the spinning dice between the gorgeous left dry by legs. Landforms set under a celestial net spaced so wide above that inner sea. We the people embody whole oceans placed in drops of immortality bet. Sanctuary is where we celebrate all life. <laughs> 